Thanks, guys. Um, morning, everybody. It's um, lovely to be together. Um, last week, I was um, speaking here, and I um, made some quip about um, my tendency to um, step over things left at the bottom of the stairs in our house intended for upstairs. And um, it got a little bit of traction, so much so, in fact, that the day after um, the message, I got home um, to find what can only be described as an impenetrable fort at the bottom of our stairs. And uh, I think that's Emma, my wife, one, JP, nil. So there we go. Um, as Gus said, um, and, and if you're um, uh, here for the first time today, um, a really warm welcome to you. We're in the midst of this series, uh, Body Matters. Um, it's a, de- a deliberate play on the term because we're talking about matters of the body, um, but that our bodies really matter. They're not just shells inside of which are the real us. They indicate, they testify um, to something. And um, we're recommending a, a book alongside the series, um, Sam Albury's book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, looks like this. Um, I find it so helpful this week, um, just dwelling in for the... Um, the prep of this message. And, and, and where we've kind of got to so far is that we, we're building a framework within which we can talk about any matter of the body. So last week, we began at looking at the word created. So it's the first kind of stopping point. Um, we looked at how we're created by God in his image, how we're embodied as male and female. Um, this week, uh, as you can see on the graphic, we're up to the, uh, to the term broken. And you can um, see the, um, the next kind of couple of weeks um, titles there. And to kick off today, I, I want to, um, to tell you about my, my auntie, Hillary, who's um, one of the most fun people um, I, I've ever met and um, uh, kind of cheeky, uh, creative. Um, I remember as, as a child, um, I was about five or six and I was massively into Thunderbirds. And um, she, um, she made me, uh, for, for my birthday, um, this Thunderbirds outfit and then produced this letter, and this was before printers got into homes, really, um, purporting to be from International Rescue, inviting me to come and be a Thunderbird pilot. It was the best birthday present ever. Um, I didn't quite know if it was real or just a kind of toy thing. Like I was at that age where still, kids still trying to kind of work it all out. And um, as I got older, I, I realized that um, she'd had a, a series of kind of unfortunate instances in, in her uh, relationships. Her first um, husband um, left her, sadly. Her um, second husband died of a heart attack. And so she moved out to Cyprus to, um, to make a new start there and uh, met this guy I have very um, fond memories of, uh, this Cypriot guy that, that she married. And, um, but it turns out, unfortunately, he had a bit of a gambling um, uh, addiction and ended up gambling their business away, which created quite a, a kind of fraught time for her. She had to kind of uh, flee back to England and start again, again. And um, a few years into being here, I remember um, just getting a phone call um, from my dad. And you know, when you, your phone goes and there's just something in you that says there's, there's something wrong, this, this just isn't right. And I could tell in the tone of his voice, he said, look, I don't quite know how to, to tell you this, but um, Hillary was, um, w- was in a car crash today and um, she didn't make it. Like she's, she's gone, she's died. And um, she got to the edge of a T-junction and for some reason, we don't know why, didn't stop. And, and um, that was it. She never met my wife. She never met my kids. They would have absolutely loved her, her cheek and her fun. And um, why am I telling you that this morning? Well, you will have your own equivalents in your life. Moments where it's almost like a, a volcano of pain just erupts right before you, scars you, marks you for, for your whole life. And some of those things will be very acute right now, today for you. Um, my story isn't even particularly a story to do with the body, or my body at least. Some of yours perhaps will be. And, and in our desire to try and look for an explanation 
as to why on earth things like this or, or the matters that we carry around, why does my body work, not work in this way? Why does this happen? I, I want to take us today, to, to um, as we look for an explanation, to, to Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible. Because um, if you remember, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are um, that, that unstained picture of God's beautiful world. But it's in Genesis chapter 3 where, where things start to go wrong. And um, it's known as the fall. Uh, and here's what it says. It says, this reading from verse 1 through to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Both of which, of course, are a twisting of God's actual words. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We've had to tape it up for safety reasons, but the mirror from last week, the shining forth, the idea that we were made to reflect God in his image, to reflect him to the world. Creation has the very same purpose. It's meant to be a reflection of God. The mirror has been smashed. It's been broken. It's been tarnished. Stevie Wonder says that's seven years bad luck. It's, uh, it's a good job we don't believe in that, isn't it? <laughs> when we talk about our bodies, I want you to imagine an, ins an instance we're all familiar with. Going to our GP. Let's say uh, something uh, has uh, started happening on our bodies and we're a bit worried about it. Something's not quite right. And so um, we obviously consult Dr. Google and decide we're going to die instantly. And so think we better go and see the GP who actually knows what he's talking about. And we think, okay, so it's eight o'clock kind of starting points. But do we phone up at 8.01? Oh, no, only a fool would phone up at 8.01. We phone at 7.57 to get all the blurb out the way. So come eight o'clock, you are third in the queue. Score, bronze medal. Okay, that's good. <laughs> You get your appointment and you go in. What are you looking for when you go to see your GP at that moment? Well, I suppose all of us are looking, firstly, probably for a bit of sympathy, a bit of recognition that what has been happening has, has uh, at the very least, not been particularly nice. But more than that, we're looking for an answer to the question, why, aren't we? Why are these ha things happening to or in my body? We're looking for a diagnosis. But we don't just want a diagnosis, do we? We're also looking for a cure. And a cure is to do with knowing the future outlook or, or when we'll be healed um, from this thing. 
And if we have both the diagnosis and the cure, then we have some reassurance about what's going on, don't we? It's if we don't have those things that the outlook can look somewhat bleak. You know, the doctor says, I'm sorry, we have no idea why this is happening to you. Or we do know, but I'm afraid that there's nothing we can do about it. And maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of news like that recently, or perhaps some of you have had to, in your, in your professional capacity, deliver such news. One of the things that I've noticed is that when we consider the brokenness of our bodies, our questions are often those things. Why? Why is this happening? Which is the diagnosis, and when will it end? What's the future outlook? Which is the cure? Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 gives us both of those things. Because the starting point of the diagnosis is to note the extent of what is broken and how it explains the world that we see around us. So I suppose the most obvious thing that jumps out from Genesis 3 is that our relationship with God gets broken, doesn't it? For Adam and Eve, they're separated from him because of their disobedience. Their reflection of him, as we referred to with the mirror, gets scarred. They place themselves as master in his place, and then they hide. And actually, if you think about it, the same is true of us, isn't it? It's, it's why we know that there's something not quite right with the world. We, we know that there's something more to life, something transcendent, but we can't seem to access it by ourselves. Try as we might by pleasuring our bodies or whatever we might try. But because of that, because our relationship with God gets broken, it's therefore no surprise that all manner of other relationships get broken too. So our relationship with ourself gets broken. For Adam and Eve, um, in their bodies, they began to feel shame and, and vulnerability. They, they live with fear. They try to self-justify. They try to um, cover their, their nakedness with fig leaves. And don't we experience exactly the same? The way we see ourselves broken. We desire what's forbidden. We believe we are things that we are not. Worthless, alone, or self-made. We medicate with sex or pornography, food or drink, other forms of comfort often hiding what's really going on deep down. And therefore, we should be under no surprise that our relationships with others get broken too, don't they? And for Adam and Eve, they shirk responsibility, they blame one another, they argue, there's huge fallout. For us, we, we get stuck between, on the one hand, carefully curated social media profiles, whilst at the same time claiming that we don't actually care at all what people think of us. And then we wonder why we feel so lonely when the world is meant to be more connected than ever before. And then finally, of course, we, we see that our, our relationship with the world around us, creation itself is, is broken. The, the planet seems cursed, doesn't it? There's floods, there's famines, there's earthquakes. You only see the terrible news coming out of Turkey and northern Syria this week to illustrate that. Work feels hard on the body. The world can feel a dangerous and a vulnerable place. We succumb to disease. Ultimately, we even die. Can you see how all of the brokenness in our bodies fits into one of those categories? And the reason is that those categories describe all of life. And that's the point. That in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, the whole of creation, including us, gets broken everywhere. The mirror gets smashed all over. 
And that's actually a leveler. Because if it's smashed everywhere, that then means that the brokenness that you experience is no more unique because it's of a certain type. Actually, we are all broken in all of those areas. We're broken very differently, but we're all broken in all areas. I am physically and emotionally and relationally broken. So are you. There are things about my body that don't work as they should do. Things in my emotions that go haywire. Areas in my relationships where they don't look as godly as I would love them to be. It's the same for you. Can I say we are all sexually broken? There are areas in our sexuality for every single one of us that could look more like Jesus. We're all spiritually broken. We're all financially broken. Maybe that one's a little bit easier to spot. My heart is a factory of idols. My mind needs renewal. My character needs to grow like Jesus. So does yours. And the way that we know those things is that we look back to Genesis 1 and 2 and we see that life is just not reflective of what we see there, is it? And whether that's the over-focus on self, whether that's the presence of death or sickness, whether that's the shame we feel or misunderstanding who we are or thinking that we can lift sex from the safety net of marriage, whether that's abusing ourselves or others or the planet around us, Clearly, we're not in the scenario of Genesis 1 and 2 anymore, are we? And whilst the extent of that brokenness shows the devastation of sin, in which we have all played a part, it's really important that we realize that some of what we experience in our lives is just the brokenness of creation rather than our own individual sin, prevalent as that sin may be. Let me illustrate it like this. I, I was talking to a, a GP um, that I know this week, and uh, they, they were telling me that kind of through their career, um, some, uh, all anonymously, but um, some of the strangest things that they have um, seen kind of come across their desk. And um, uh, one of my um, favorite ones was they said that um, a, a parent brought um, a child in uh, very, very worried because all of a sudden these spots had just appeared very, very suddenly on, on this child. And they, uh, they, they phoned up, they got an emo, uh, emergency appointment and, and the GP was looking at this, these things and just something just wasn't quite right. And so just kind of took some water to one of these spots and um, suddenly it, it went away <laughs> and, <laughs> and the child just got a felt tip and just kind of, so all over their body, their parents just dying of embarrassment in the background. But this is GP was just saying that some of the cases that they, they saw, some of them were down, uh, some of them people were, were the cause of, of the sicknesses, you know, through, through their behavior or they'd done something daft or whatever. But most of them were, were just because the sickness in the world. But the point is that both of them need treating. Now, I was talking to um, Derek Tidball about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Derek spoke here a few weeks back, actually, and he pointed out the difference in Jesus' parables of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And in, in the prodigal son, the son makes a deliberate choice to act on his broken desires and reject his father. And the first par part of the parable is about the, the father's welcome as the son returns repentant of his sin. But the good Samaritan, on the other hand, the man was sinned against. He's left for dead in the road. 
And the parable is about the rescuer who comes to heal and restore. The former was sin. The latter is just the brokenness of the world. And whilst it can lead to temptations to act sinfully, you know, the person that gets drunk to hide the underlying anxiety or something, it's not sin in itself. Both need treating. The sin needs forgiving. The brokenness needs healing. Not all the brokenness that we experience is sinful. It's not sinful to experience anxiety or depression. It's not sinful to experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. It's not sinful to have a complex relationship with eating or, or with people. Now, it might just be worth taking a moment to, to address the comment there um, about same-sex attraction and, and gender dysphoria biblically being part of a wider sexual brokenness rather than who a person is. Because I, I recognize that that, that sort of comment could, could sound offensive to some, and that some would consider that um, a damaging thing to say. I, I hear that. And it is certainly not our intention to, to cause harm, but simply to point to the hope that the gospel gives. And we want to approach discussions on these matters humbly, been learning of the immense pain involved in, in processing some of these things. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I would plead with you, to first establish, before anything else, who you think Jesus is. Because you can't be expected to challenge who either you or someone that you know feels they are without having first concluded that Jesus is the greatest treasure in all of life, that he knows and is sufficient for your every need, and that he gives you your truest identity. And if you do know Jesus, if you believe that the Bible is God's authoritative good news story, then questions on things like sexuality ultimately become ones of what scripture says, don't they? Otherwise, each culture just projects their own values onto God. And we'll cover a little bit more about this when we talk on sexuality in a few weeks' time. But if you believe the Bible, I would encourage you to look back to Genesis 1 and 2 and look at God's perfect order that is now broken, not entirely wiped out. The order gets broken, not entirely wiped out. Look at how the rest of the Bible story assumes Genesis 1 and 2 as the starting place, even Jesus himself. And then as we journey together on these issues, I would plead with us that we would have compassion on one another, remembering that we are all sexually broken. Now, sobering as all of that is, actually, I think it's really important that we remember the comfort of knowing that we have a physician who can accurately diagnose the problems that our bodies encounter. God is not left without explanation. The fallenness of the world has not surprised the one who chose his people to be redeemed by Jesus before the world's foundation. And so then we need to look at his cure. And, and as we look at this, I, I'm not trying to give a, an explanation of all suffering here. That would be very, very unwise of me. There's plenty that I don't understand. But in the Bible, all activity has meaning within it. And it's the same here, that there is meaning to be found within our brokenness. The starting point of which is that the gospel is our hope. The gospel is our hope. 
And if we look at our text in Genesis 3, we see a number of pointers to the restoration of this broken world. So in verse 7, just after they've eaten the fruit, they don't immediately die. Now, death does come because of that act of disobedience. That's why it feels so wrong. It was never meant to be. But instead, God comes to them in verse 8. He's always near in the story. I love that. And when God does come, he covers their shame, which in their instance is their nakedness. He takes our feeble, fig leaf attempts to cover ourselves. And instead in verse 21 that we didn't read, he he gives garments to them. And they're foreshadowing the garments of righteousness that are given to us to cover our shame and our sin at the cross. And then he makes this promise. This is verse 15, just after we finish reading that one day the offspring of the woman shall bruise or crush the serpent, who in in this passage is the devil, and that the devil shall bruise or crush the heel of this person. He's talking about the cross. The devil was defeated whilst Jesus' life was crushed, ensuring that one day all of the brokenness in the world will be destroyed forever And we who are broken, who trust in Jesus, will be saved. Painful as life may be, we are not without hope. And that is because the second thing is that the story is not over. The story is not over. And if I jump a little bit later on into the story in in Romans um, chapter 8, I want to read to you from um, verse 19. And don't worry if this sounds complex when it's first read, I'll I'll kind of explain it afterwards. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, what's what's it saying there? It's it's saying that creation has been subjected by God to futility, is the phrase, to frustration, if you like. And it's meaning that because of the fall, because of what happened in Genesis 3 that that we read at the start, that the world around us has been put out of joints. It's been dislocated, if you like, and that's what we've been seeing so far. That because it doesn't work how it's meant to, It's meant to be a reminder to humanity that we don't relate to God as we were meant to. That the sin in the world, separation from God, ultimately his judgment. But it says, creation's been subjected to to this dislocation in hope, says in verse 20. That the hope for the world is tied to the revealing of the children of God. That's what it says. And what it means is that in God's rescue of us, the beginnings of freedom from bondage for the world are shown in the freedom from spiritual bondage of his people who still live in this fallen world. Now, if you've got no idea what on earth I'm on about, let me illustrate it like this. Ten years ago, I, um, I dislocated my shoulder. It was the, the second time that, um, that I'd done it. Both of them were playing football. Probably should stop doing that. But um, 
it was starting to be a pattern, I suppose. And so um, decided to have a, it's called a shoulder stabilization where they basically kind of sew it back in. And, um, I, and so kind of heading into the theater um, for this, this operation. And um, I remember um, one of the um, nurses actually uh, saying to me as they put the shoulder block on, so I couldn't feel it, she said, um, do you want me to hold your arm for you? Which I thought was a very strange question. You know, I'd, I'd been holding my arm for 25 years of my life. And um, I was like, oh, don't worry, it's okay. Um, at which point the block happened and it kind of flopped down. It was, it was the strangest feeling. But as I went in for the, the operation and came out on, on the other side, I remember finding out that there was a Premier League footballer who had also dislocated his shoulder. Theo Walcott was his name. He played for Arsenal at the time. And he was just about to come back into professional action. And, and the time lag between his dislocation and his re-entry onto the pitch was about five weeks. And that gave me tremendous hope that in looking out for him stepping back onto the pitch, I could see the end of the story that in some way my recovery became kind of partially tied into his because it could help me to see the end. Now, I say partially because, of course, I don't know what was going on with him. I don't know what injections he was having or whether his shoulder was pop popping out since or whatever. But as in it, seeing him recover from it gave hope to me of my recovery. And, and what it's saying is, is that the rescue, God's rescue of his people has been enacted and that gives hope for the world that one day this hope will be realized, that the end is guaranteed, that we will have new working bodies and creation will be made anew in the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, the brokenness that we see combined with the hope of the gospel makes us long for the return of Jesus Christ to finally and fully complete the story where there will be no more pain or crying or tears or mourning, for the old order of things will have passed away. The story's not over yet. And Rosie will pick that up in, in a few weeks' time. Because then the, the third thing that's really important to know, it, it, the message in our, our brokenness, is that God is, really is not absent. You know, I, I referenced earlier needing sympathy when we go to um, see our, our GP, but... We can't talk about the pain of life without recognizing the empathy of Jesus, as Roshan was praying about earlier, who has come into our brokenness, who has identified with us. Guys, he's able to sympathize with us. He knows and feels our pain. He has power to overcome our mistakes and strengthens us in our weakness. And Tim will put, uh, pick up a little bit more on this next week. But if the question were, were asked, where is Jesus in my pain? The answer, if you're a Christian, is right there with you in it. I, I was thinking back um, uh, to a, um, a, a time in my job where I was feeling particularly vulnerable. There are a number of tricky situations um, going on. And I started to feel really quite panicky. And I was confused why my body was responding in that way. It never particularly had before. I was um, losing sleep. I was fearing turning up to places. And though sometimes it was a battle, every time I went to Jesus, what I found there was his presence and his comfort. And the situation was by no means resolved, but I knew he was with me in it. 
And that made a tremendous difference. But actually, the Bible goes even further than that. Because a little bit later on in that Romans 8 passage that we were reading earlier, in verse 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The promise is not only that he's with us, but that somehow he will use the trials that we go through for his purposes. And I'm sure we can all identify how the brokenness with which we live throws us to the feet of Jesus in desperation and pain and hurt clinging onto him. You know, we may not always know what God is doing, but we do know his promise. And, and, and actually, you could go even further than that. If you go to the end of the story in Re- Revelation 7, that the promise there is that he's not just with us, he's not just using our suffering in some way, but that he will keep us going in the midst of the trial. Now, Gus had a great time smashing this mirror up earlier, didn't you, mate? And um, if Gus had simply taken one of the mirrors from last week and had just smashed it all up, the problem we would have had is that it would have fallen to pieces. And when Steve kindly brought it up earlier, it would have been left in a broken mess down there. So we've got a kind of piece of wood at the back and and, and a a kind of sticky back plastic on the front. Actually, I I realize in the midst of this is a tremendous demonstration of what Jesus does, that without him, we would be left in a broken mess. But in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our trials, he holds us together. He keeps us going right in the midst of it. So let's say if your mental health means that you can't get up in the morning. Maybe the instance is that you're crying in the kitchen because your decision to live celibately for Jesus has left you feeling lonely. Maybe maybe you despise what you see in the mirror or you're throwing up once again. Jesus' promise is that he will keep you going keep you clinging on by holding on to you. That is worth treasuring. But the very last thing is that our response in all of these things is one of lament. You know, in in the Bible, the most common reaction to brokenness, it's not having it all together. It's not having well-worked reasons why these things exist. It's simply lament. Think of Hannah lamenting her infertility in 1 Samuel. Think of David lamenting the sickness and subsequent death of his child. Think of Nehemiah lamenting the the state of the Jewish people and Jerusalem in which they were living. One third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. The psalmist crying out to God, why are things like this? Even Jesus himself lamenting over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. You know, in in lament, we express the pain that we feel, don't we? We get it all out. We don't hide it from God, who knows it all anyway. In lament, we mourn that the world is not as it should be. Neither are our bodies. We recognize that we sin and are sinned against. We long for our sorrow to turn into joy, aching for the return of Christ to make all things new. Lament illustrates our need for God. 
And that's why I, I want to finish by reading Psalm 13 and leaving us with a, a tool on how to do this. I found this so helpful just as we um, learn to lament. In, in times in my life, I'm like, God, I don't understand what on earth is going on here. Psalm 13 says this, the first four verses of, uh, uh, verses of lament and the last two, trust in God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Poignant, isn't it? A tool to know how to use this. This is from our friends over at um, King's Arms Church in Bedford, slightly adapted. And we're, we're going to do this as a, 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 as a, a church together. That, um, three, three steps to this. That firstly, it's really important that we express the pain of what we're feeling. Secondly, it's really important that we declare the truth of who God is. And thirdly, that we take the step to say that for all we don't know why, we trust God, we know his promises. That's what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 13. 